Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, after her son's death in Macon State Prison, Jennifer Bradley seeks answers. I haven't received any of Karen's personal belongings. You know, I have nothing left of my child in his adult, you know, in his adult life because he went to prison at 17. I didn't get anything. They never gave me anything, and I know they were supposed to have secured that stuff, but instead they lied, gave me the runaround. Nobody has apologized for it happening. Nobody has held any type of accountability. Instead, they pretty much ignored me. Part two of our series, Crisis in Georgia Prisons, continues. But first, this news, Georgia has now surpassed one million in-person early voters for the upcoming November general election. To be exact, 1.1 million Georgians have already cast ballots. 765,000 mail-in ballots have been returned. This is according to the Georgia Secretary of State's office. And get this, Georgia now has an all-time high of 7.6 million registered voters in the state, which could mean the final 10 days of early voting will lead to an even higher participation rate. All Georgia counties will offer early voting this Saturday. Many will have polls open Sunday. Now you need to check your individual counties for that. Early voting ends October 30th. Of course, more people are taking advantage of early voting and mail-in ballots due to the pandemic. And this is at a time when the U.S. has seen another increase in coronavirus cases nationwide. Cases are growing by 5% or more in at least 38 states. That's according to Johns Hopkins University. Georgia is one of those states. And at the time of this broadcast, 342,438 COVID cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. Active coronavirus-related hospitalizations have remained flat. In total, 30,541 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,701 were ICU admissions. And now, 7,674 deaths have been recorded since March, and this information comes from the State Department of Public Health. Which leads to this, as we'll hear from WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead, it's believed the total number of COVID-19 deaths, well, is probably not accurate. CDC researchers say official counts of COVID-19 deaths are likely underestimates because of limitations in diagnostic testing and incomplete reporting on death certificates. So they counted the number of deaths that happened in the U.S. each week from January 26th to October 3rd of this year, then compared the figures to the average number of deaths that happened in the same weeks from 2015 to 2019. CDC researchers found some 299,000 excess deaths and attributed two-thirds to COVID-19. 
Hispanics saw a 53% increase in excess deaths, which researchers say is consistent with known trends in COVID-19 mortality. Sam Whitehead, WABE News. And you could also catch Sam as the host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Now, in other news, an Atlanta school board committee recommends renaming Grady High School after journalist and abolitionist Ida B. Wells. Now, the school student newspaper, The Southerner, reports the committee made the recommendation during a school board meeting last night. The name will now head to the full school board for consideration, which means a possible vote could be coming soon. The school's namesake, Henry Grady, was an editor at the Atlanta Constitution and endorsed white supremacy. Finally, Atlanta's Morehouse and Spelman Colleges are among HBCUs that will share a $12 million donation from Morgan Stanley. It's all part of the Investment Bank's new HBCU Scholars Program. The funding will provide 60 scholarships to cover tuition and living expenses, so 20 scholarships per school. In a statement, David Thomas, president of Morehouse, said the gift will, quote, make college a reality for students and families who could not otherwise afford a higher education. Close quote. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, Jennifer Bradley will join me. But before she shares her story, here's a little backstory. According to the Marshall Project, in partnership with the Associated Press, as of October 15th, there have been at least 147,100 cases of the coronavirus reported among inmates in U.S. prisons. 122,766 have recovered. It is believed that the first known COVID-19 death of an inmate was right here in Georgia. 49-year-old Anthony Cheek died on March 26th. He was incarcerated at Lee State Prison near Albany. And at that time, Albany was beginning to spike in coronavirus cases. Now, the Marshall Project reports here in Georgia also 1,947 inmates have tested positive. 71 deaths have been reported. And we should note the Department of Corrections reports the same data. But concerns regarding Georgia prisons and the spread of the coronavirus is just among a number of other allegations that have now led to a request for the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene. The Southern Center for Human Rights is behind the ask for, quote, deplorable conditions at several state prisons. Now, earlier in the week, I spoke with Sarah Tatanchi, Executive Director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Sarah Garrity, Senior Counsel for the Center. You all actually describe, quote, riots, and you've seen, you say you have video evidence of this, the letter states, and I'm quoting here, videos taken by incarcerated people uh, that are readily available online show extreme Uh, Injured prisons covered in blood, prison dorms with no security supervision, groups of men roaming, lockdown dorms armed with machetes and cells with no running water or functioning toilets. And then all this combined with the coronavirus. Um, That's that's right, Rose. Um, A lot of um, the the disturbances that uh, happened in the prison system at where, for example, and at Macon State Prison, uh, some of these things were, were caught live on, on social media. And in fact, the following video was recorded, according to this gentleman, on August 4th at Ware State Prison. Here the inmate is describing the conditions inside the prison. 
They give us peanut butter, peanut butter and cheese with no water. Like no water, don't have no type of water. We get one scoop of water, we get one scoop of ice a day, and if we might get that. So this is how we live in a red state prison. Because we are on lockdown right now. And so being because of the riot. The reason we riot, reason why the riot pop, because of health issues, leaving us in the room locked in, not taking our showers, not giving us showers, not doing nothing for us. So this is why Red State had a riot. That's why officers were injured because they cut power off and they refused to give us water and food. And it's been like this for almost two weeks now. Like we've been locked down. My dorm has been locked down for a month. These are not normal things that happen in prisons. They are not things that have um, happened regular with the frequency with which they're happening in the Georgia prison system until recently. Uh, there has been a significant breakdown in security at a number of our prisons, and it is not being responded to appropriately, and people are losing their lives as a result. And I think for our listeners to understand what you all are, are hearing and seeing in the and what you're getting back from families and those who are incarcerated. Sarah Garrity, can you share someone's story? I'll share a couple of um, incidents that have been reported to us, and these are disturbing. Uh, We've seen a video, for example, um, of a man in a closed security prison with a, a dog leash around his neck being led across the dorm and slapped by people. Um, and led into a cell. Uh, We've heard accounts of incarcerated people who were, um, of an incarcerated man who was forced to drink the urine of several other men, uh, again, in a a prison in which there was severe understaffing and and people essentially no supervision. Uh, We've heard the story of another man who uh, witnessed a man on his tear get stabbed um, to the point where his intestines uh, were, were coming out. So when we say that the, the prisons are in crisis, we are, we are, we are not exaggerating. Um, people are uh, fearful for their lives and their safety <clears throat> on a daily basis. And, and yes, uh, yes, the Department of Corrections houses some people um, who have been convicted of crimes. But the people who run the prisons have a constitutional duty to take reasonable steps to protect people from a substantial risk of harm. And when a close security prison with 1,500 people in it has six people running security, that is unreasonable. And that is a state failure. And then Rose, I did just wanna mention the going back to the women's prison. One of the things that we need to, to reckon with is the the number of of African-American people we put in prison. Their lives matter and people are dying avoidable deaths. Uh, We represent a woman named Cassandra Hayes who has been in prison for 14 years for selling $20 worth of cocaine. She does not need to be in prison from any any kind of public security uh, consideration. She has pre-existing health conditions that put her, her health at risk. She's at a prison with a severe outbreak. She has a family that loves her and she is terrified that she's gonna die. We've notified the department and the board repeatedly of the risk to her and she is still 
there. Couple questions here, Sarah Garrity. So she has contracted the virus, or she's in fear of? No, she has. She has not yet contracted the virus, but she is at a prison where there is a significant outbreak. With as of today, sixty-nine uh, positive cases, and I think forty-two cases among staff members. Again, we think that's a significant underrepresentation, and um, we are we're really concerned about uh, about what might happen to her if she contracts the virus. Uh, as noted earlier, we have had a, a client die at that prison. And again, just so our listeners are very clear, because Closer Look has not been able to receive comment or response from the Georgia Department of Corrections. You all have not. Have you all reached out to the commissioner or to the governor's office about any of this? Uh, we have reached out repeatedly to the commissioner of the Department of Corrections and um, copied the governor's office on our um, recent correspondence that sets forth in, in significant detail our concerns about conditions in the prison system and the spread of COVID in the prisons. All right. But we have not heard anything back uh, other than the comments that we have read in the press that they are declining to comment due to potential litigation. But can they comment on what they're doing though? We sure would appreciate it. We would love to hear, we would love to have more information than what we have right now. When we started this conversation, you all talked about looking at some other states that could be a blueprint for effectively handling this. So other states have done a lot more than Georgia to address these issues responsibly and head on. Uh, in Kentucky, early in the pandemic, the governor commuted sentences of, of a number of people. Uh, later, I think in August, the state commuted the sentences of almost 700 others who were convicted of, of certain lower level offenses and had less than, I think, six months left to serve. Uh, Michigan reportedly reduced its state prison population by about 5% since mid-March. Uh, Georgia did a, a number, did a limited number of releases early in the pandemic, uh, but since then, uh, it, it's essentially been sort of business as usual at, at the parole board. And, and we would just respectfully suggest that um, we are in a, still in a state of, of global pandemic. It's not business as usual. Um, and if our state agencies uh, don't fail to act, uh, people are gonna lose their lives. Um, and um, unfortunately many have, but this is gonna to continue to happen. Um, we, we hope the state will act to, prove, to um, stop more preventable deaths. That's Sarah Tatanchi and Sarah Garrity, both with the Southern Center for Human Rights. Now when Closer Look returns, I'll speak with Jennifer Bradley, whose son was stabbed to death in March of this year inside Macon State Prison. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
As we pick up part two of our series, Crisis in Georgia Prisons, we welcome Jennifer Bradley to the program. Ms. Bradley is the mother of Carrington Jawan Fry. In March of this year, Carrington died inside Macon State Prison in Macon, Georgia. The details surrounding his death have yet to be revealed, but as you'll hear in a moment, Fry's mother, Ms. Bradley, shares what she's been told regarding her son's death, a possible homicide. This is the first time Ms. Bradley is going public with Carrington's story. Ms. Bradley, first, our condolences on the death of Carrington. Um, I read in his obituary where you talked about Carrington being an honor student and all the things that he loved to do. Tell our listeners more about Carrington. So, Carrington, uh, we moved here 10 years ago from Arkansas. We didn't have any family here. Um, moved Carrington away from his, you know, dad, and that was really hard on him, the transition. Uh, he was a football star, Rose. He uh, was a basketball star. Excelled in pretty much everything he did. Scored really higher than national uh uh, standards on standardized testing, um, very loving kid, grew up in a loving home, um, made some, cho- you know, unfavorable choices in his life. And that's kind of what landed him in the Georgia Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. But overall, a, a good kid. He was sentenced at the age of, how old was he when he was sentenced, Miss Bradley? He had just turned 17. He was a couple of months past his 17th birthday. And so he was tried as an adult? Yes, ma'am. He was tried as an adult for, you know, that making that bad choice that didn't cost anybody their life. It didn't cost anybody their quality of life. He didn't go to kill anybody. Carrington didn't wake up in the morning and go shoot up a school or, or you know, rape somebody or put his knee on somebody's neck. Cause he, he was in an altercation, several altercations with these couple of guys and was in an altercation at the time when he made the decision to, you know, shoot the gun and shot the guy in the foot. When he was sentenced, what was the sentence that was given to Carrington? They gave him eight years with six to serve or something like that. And um, for the one I want to say, with like 10 years of probation after he, you know, was to get paroled. And at the time of his murder, he was actually past six years. He was almost seven years in. What conversations did you have with Carrington about those decisions that he made? And and what did he tell you about what he hoped his future would be after serving the sentence? So retrospectively, Rose, you know, after it had happened, Carrington realized that, you know, it wasn't the right decision that he made. You know, he said, Ma, um, as much as, you know, I got in school with those boys, I didn't want anybody to get, to get hurt. So he realized that it wasn't the right decision. But we had to kind of move on from it. Uh, he was really looking forward to embracing his new life in society. You know, we had talked about it. We had made provisions to kind of help him, mm-hmm. you know, on that journey to get things right. Because we knew we couldn't undo it, but we just wanted to move forward past it. And he was looking forward, you know, to doing just that, to getting back out there. And we weren't ever concerned about him being a part of any recidivism statistics. And he earned his GED and actually graduated salutatorium of his of his class, correct? Yes, ma'am. Salutatorium of his class. Always a smart kid. And when I went to his graduation and uh, and I, they announced him salutatorium, and I kind of knew when when I saw the one guy speak was valedictorian, I knew Carrington had did something to blow that purposely. And like, what happened? Why didn't you get valedictorian? 
like mom not a speaker you know that like that guy's funny you have to be a comedian and stuff like that and I can't like get up there in front of those people so he didn't finish a test purposely mm. and that kind of knocked his grade down very smart kid always and gifted and talented growing up you know honors band camp uh first chair playing the clarinet well-rounded kid prior to the pandemic how often were you able to make it to actually the last time i had seen carrington was in november shortly after my birthday he had been on uh, restrictions you know for a long time i want to say uh, for a contraband phone or something like that. I'm I'm not totally sure, you know. Um, they wouldn't really give me a lot of details on it. They wouldn't really let us. I didn't know that I could contest or appeal anything. You know, we didn't know those types of things. So we it had been a while since I actually seen him in person, and it was very difficult for both of us, very difficult. Did Carrington ever talk about the conditions inside, Ms. Bradley? We, yes, ma'am. We talked about some but mostly Carrington would tell me things like kind of after the fact. He was very careful, Rose, not to show me worry. That's just the type of young man that he was. Uh, he put on a smile. But being his mother, I would often sense like there was something beneath the surface that was bothering him. Um, he told me once, remember hearing screams. And they kind of thought that it was somebody horsing around. But come to find out, you know, somebody had gotten, you know, a little young man had gotten raped and that bothered him, you know, and I was concerned and I asked him, was he, was he concerned about that? He said, Mom, they would have to kill me before they did that to me. Um, he spoke about once being put in a cell with, um, and I guess maybe I shouldn't say his name, I don't know, and it, uh, a pro boxer who had fought in the Olympics and he kind of told me that after that and I'm like, why would they put you in a cell with somebody like that? who's convicted of murder. And that was tough for him. You know, he said the guy shadow boxed day in and day out, you know, cursing him out, degrading him. And it wasn't until they ended up having an altercation that Carrington was removed from the cell. But that that was endangering to me, like the classification or the that cellmate placement. That was a poor decision. You know, in my honest opinion, it was a poor decision. Carrington was very much younger than this guy, you know. He was getting out, and this guy wasn't, so that made him an offender with nothing to lose. So he was sharing a cell with a, a former professional boxer? Yes, ma'am, a convicted murderer. He was sharing that cell with him. Uh, when they got into an altercation, that's when uh, they had uh, moved Carrington from the cell. But he told me that after the fact, I had went there to see him during that time, and I couldn't see him because I think I came after after the time, because he had been placed in the hole, I want to say. And they gave me a certain time to be there, but at the time, I didn't know when it was I got there, so I came there too late. So I went back to my vehicle, and I did, like, a video to him. And in the video, I broke down crying because I couldn't see him. So when I went to see him, you know, he's telling me, Ma, he said, don't ever send me a video like that with you crying. He said, because that, that does something to me. And I can't cry in here. I can't show. It's a sign of weakness to them. He said, don't send me that. Um, and that's when he started telling me, he said, it's a good thing that you weren't able to see me, Ma. He said, I know you. You've been crying and screaming. He said, my eye was busted open. And that's when he started telling me that he had gotten into the altercation with his homicide. Things like that. Miss hmm. Bradley, what can you tell me about what you know, what happened 
on March 20th of this year? So around nine o'clock, I got a, uh, a phone call from another inmate, a prisoner from a, a contraband phone. And what he said was, I still remember, he said, Ms. Bradley, this is one of Carrington's friends that please call up to the prison and check on your son. He got stabbed and they said that he was dead. Was this nine in the I morning? I didn't want to believe it. Or, I'm sorry. No, I... ma'am. This was like nine o'clock at night. I didn't get a call from no from the from Warden Perry or any prison official. Um, so you know, I I fell. I was laying down and I kind of rolled out of the bed and fell to the floor and crawled my way to my older son's room. And uh, I was screaming. I couldn't. You know, I was shaking and I managed to call Macon State Prison and. Um, asked to speak to the, you know, the warden. I was like, what's going on? Get me my son. Get me. I need to speak to my son right now. And uh, so she transferred me to the warden. No, she said, call back. She said, call back, or we'll call you back. And uh, after maybe the third or fourth call, I was finally able to speak with someone, and that's when they confirmed that, you know, that his body had been taken to the morgue. They didn't tell me what happened. He told me that um, there was an ongoing investigation and he couldn't tell me anything, you know, um, about it. Um, I even mentioned, you know, his personal items and he couldn't, he told me those were, you know, under investigation at the time. I didn't really know like the details surrounding what had happened. The only thing I knew was, you know, that he was stabbed, that the other uh, prisoner had told me that he had gotten stabbed. So the more people I talked to, you know, I talked to like, a guard or two, like off record, you know, that didn't want their names involved. And I talked to some other prisoners. Uh, they said that it was one, well, the, the couple of prisoners, not the guard, didn't confirm this, but the couple of prisoners said that it was one guard uh, for 188 inmates inside of a dorm. What can she do for 188 inmates? She can't possibly de escalate or control any type of uh, brewing tension or violence between that many you know, people. And they said that she was located inside of a booth. They said the attack on Carrington happened, you know, out of nowhere. Nobody ever saw it coming. Carrington never saw it coming. It was totally off guard. What one of the guards told me that uh, she wasn't actually back there, but she was on duty that day that she had spoken to, you know, the bystanders, the other prisoners who were there. Apparently he had stolen something from Carrington. Carrington asked him about it. Not like any uh, way where he was uh, trying to approach him to fight him or anything. She said that in prison they have something where they make it a peace offering. They they tell the person that you need to go put yourself in isolation. You need to remove yourself from the dorm. If they've done something, I don't want to fight you. I don't want any tension or drama with you, but you need to escort yourself away from the dorm. So she said that's what Carrington had told the guy. He said, apparently, he left like he was going to them to put himself in isolation, but he uh, he apparently backed, backtracked with the knife. And she said that Carrington was, you know, running for his life. <sighs> when I think about those images of my child running, trying to live, bleeding, nobody there to help him. As a mother, 
I couldn't protect my child. And for him to lay back there and bleed, you know, and bleed out. And I, I know Carrington. I know he was always a protector. He was always worried about other people over himself. Even while he was incarcerated, dealing with everything that he had to deal with, I know my child thought about me and that I was about to get the most devastating news of my life. And they told me that he was trying to live. And I know he was trying to live for me, not even himself, because that's the type of kid that Carrington always has been. I remember him being nine years old, and I, and I didn't have money for gas, and he was offering me his allowance that he had saved up for gas. You know, he was always putting other people over himself. So to think of my child laying there and nobody to help him, I wasn't even there to help him as his mother. It's, it's an indescribable feeling. Mrs. Bradley, what have the officials... One of the guards, uh, one of the, the, the prisoners that they had to plead with her to let him inside the Sally Port said he actually was able to walk, you know, and uh, he kept saying, I'm going to be all right, I'm going to be all right. And once he got to the door, she didn't want to let him in. You know, maybe she was afraid. I don't know, because she was there by herself, but they had to plead with her to let him in to the Sally Port. The Sally Port is like an area in between two doors. So, mm-hmm. And they said that he kind of laid back there and, you know, and pretty much died Uh maybe two or three inmates told me that it was like 30 to 30, 35 minutes before somebody even got back there to help them. What have of course, prison officials told you, know, you about this, about his, his murder? They haven't told me anything. They haven't substantiated any of that. Of course they, you know, they won't, they haven't told me anything to this day of what happened. You know, Warden Perry, kept saying that he couldn't talk about it because it was an ongoing investigation. He did say, well, I think it was an altercation, you know, or something of that nature. Everything that I've learned about what happened to Carrington was pretty much from other prisoners, you know, and the couple of guards. Uh, you know, one of the prisoners did tell me that there were cameras back there where it happened, but they were obscured with Vaseline and the guards pretty much, they don't even do anything about it. They just leave them obscured with Vaseline. And um, it made me feel good, you know, that the guards told me that, you know, they said some murders, they never, you know, are able to solve. They never find out because they have this no snitch policy in prison. People are afraid to snitch. He said, but for your son, nobody cared about snitching. That's the kind of impact that he had on people. That they wanted to talk. They were upset. The even debriefing with the guards, it was everybody was upset because he never placed himself in situations like this for this to happen to him. And that made me feel good about the kid that I raised, which it didn't surprise me at all. No, she said that she even wondered why he was there. There's an ongoing investigation. So this happened in March. It's October. I just want to be very clear, Ms. Bradley, you have not heard anything from yeah, anyone. From no one in the prison situation. You know, I've spoken to 
the DA um, a few times, and um, he didn't really tell me a lot. He did tell me some of the charges that he planned to pursue. The, uh, the case was supposed to have been heard by the grand jury in, um, in June, but because of COVID, it was pushed back, and it now it's supposed to be in December. I haven't received any of Karen's personal belongings. You know, I have nothing left of my child in his adult, you know, in his adult life because he went to prison at 17. Mm-hmm. So everything, all of his adult memories or things that belonged to him was what he had in prison. I didn't get his, his diploma. I didn't get any of his, you know, old letters, photos, any of the electronics that he bought, his shoes, any, I didn't get anything. They never gave me anything, and I know they were supposed to have secured that stuff, but instead they lied, gave me the runaround. Nobody has apologized for it happening. Nobody has held any type of accountability. Instead, they pretty much ignored me. Uh, You know, like my child's life didn't matter. That's what I feel. How long do you think you should continue to wait to see if there's anything that comes out of this in terms of an investigation. You say, how long do I think I should wait to see if anything will come out of the investigation? Mm-hmm. Before you take any other actions, or do you plan to take any other actions? Yes, ma'am, I do. I do have an attorney. Um, I hired an attorney maybe like a month after it happened. And um, he had told me, like, don't talk to, you know, anybody about it. He doesn't even know that I'm doing this. But, you know, I prayed about it. I talked to my oldest boy about it, and we felt that, why wait? Nothing may even become of the case. And even if it does for us, Rose, it's not about money. Mm-hmm. I don't care about getting a dime of this, but I'm not going to lay down and die. I'm not going to allow my child to lay down and die and not try to make somebody be held accountable for this. Somebody just to say, look, we, we messed up. And maybe this will help somebody else get. And I, I know Carrington. He was always like the kind of like the boss of our family, even though he was the youngest of him and his brother. He was always like, you know, the man of the house. He was the boss. And I know like what he would tell me. I hear his voice and I pray for his voice constantly. He was always, Mom, no, they can't do that. You know, Mom, can you call up here? Or, Mom, well, you don't need to do that, Mom. So he was always like kind of, telling me like in a good way what to do and I just pray every day that I can be that voice that that he can speak through me I can't, can't let him have lost his life in vain I gotta speak about it and I'll write until I get tired until somebody gets tired of me of listening to me I'll keep writing and I'll keep talking about it Jennifer Bradley mother of Carrington Juwan Fry who was stabbed to death inside Macon State Prison earlier this year in March. Ms. Bradley, thank you so much for sharing your story. Again, our condolences on the death of your son. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. 
This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.